I held as steady as I could, walked back and forth in my cell. There was a small window. I stood there looking out. And to keep from sliding into panic, I sang the songs of the movement, We Shall Overcome, Freedom, and the rest of them. I'm from a Methodist family. Pretty soon I was singing old Sunday school songs. Funny how deep down they go in you. I was humming, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, thinking of those old days. Sin, sin, sin. Everything nearly was a sin except segregation. Whiter than snow, that means we are pure. Dark, that means they are impure. How asinine can the human mind get? Segregation, a holy ritual more meaningful than the Lord's Supper. You couldn't question it. You bowed down and worshiped the whiteness it ritualized. It scared me to think this. I had read it before. Now in that jail, that night, I believed it. We've lost God. We've surrounded ourselves with godlets. Our white skin is the number one God we worship. When you've got white skin, you don't even need a soul. I tried to laugh. I cried. Mississippi, that is where I was. Bleak and beautiful and terrible, that state. Beyond tragedy. What holocaust will they bring on themselves? Will they push things as far as did the Nazis? Can they? and still remain a part of our nation? Is there no way? Someone was at the door, the cop. I had on my shirt and jeans, just as I was when he arrested me. He arrested me for breaking a traffic rule, he said. He knew I was working with, quote, the niggers, and so he took me to jail. No accident, no one heard, nothing had happened. I hadn't even broken a minor traffic law. But things are not real here. Truth is an irrelevance. I've never met a truthful cop. There may be some somewhere. I'm sure there are a few in Atlanta or Richmond, maybe in North Carolina or Tennessee, but I have never come near one in the movement. He began to talk. I tried not to listen. The words were mostly words I can't say aloud. He wanted to know what nigger I had slept with the night before. Was it fun? You must have some excuse, he said. A damned good one for going out and sitting in with these niggers. They pay you for it, do they, at nights? I stood there humming. I didn't dare stop. My heart was skipping. I was scared, outraged. There was nobody to call to for help. This is the worst part of segregation this foul obscenity that rots white people's minds away. You feel minds are crawling with lice that have crept out of the rotten, dirty places in our lives. And cops seem to have more than their share. Why? Why do we have these people for policemen? Is it true the world over that the dregs are always the police? I don't know. They should be the very best they should be men we believe in and admire for their good judgment, their moral cleanness, 
the self-discipline when the South it doesn't turn out that way down here most of them seem obsessed about mixed children millions of mixed children sex and sin wrapped up in a dirty cloth called segregation but it's all right just so the kids are illegal a legitimate mixed race child ah there's the horror the taboo a child born from a holy marriage oh no that's terrible i couldn't sleep after he walked away it was so still all the big sounds deathly still but a thousand thin noises ran along my nerve endings i was cold shaking cold i clung to the window i clung to outer space hung on desperately trying to forget everything behind me the south i love and fear is sweet stench its gentle terrors its sudden naked horrors and its desire to be good and its apathy aching to be good and yet unable to move why can't the warm-hearted intelligent southerners change why can't they move why can't they speak out daddy why haven't you spoken out you have nice feelings you didn't join a white citizens council you wouldn't lynch or dynamite anyone you wouldn't push and scrouge or would you you don't say nigger but you are against the public accommodations measure you think a city has a holy right to close itself up against a part of the citizenry because of color you think property rights are more important than human rights don't you you're really against the entire civil rights bill aren't you they're taking away our rights you say they're tearing up the constitution you say this my father whom i adore and yet you read plato you're supposed to be a kind of local authority on the old greeks dad all time quoting aeschylus how can you how can you how can you i'm crying i'm a little girl crying because she wants a brave honest father who seeks the truth of his time not the greeks time who can look beyond this awful mess we're in you went to harvard and yet you fall for the lies mr rich white told mr poor white long ago you keep him satisfied with poverty and sharecropping and all the rest of it how can you don't you know why why they said that don't you know it was to keep the poor whites from demanding their rights as americans do you need me to tell you that is why mr rich white handed them a drug instead of bread a tranquilizer for their hungry souls to feed on and now it's driven some of them mad i love you that is what hurts i admire so much of you when you're off the subject of race you are sane and erudite and charming my mother she does more about the problem than you do dad 
but she does it secretly. She's afraid of what you will say. That isn't fair to her. There's an edge of you that troubles her too. She worships you, but there is a little edge she keeps the bright light off of. Last summer, when the trouble happened in Birmingham, in our hometown, you didn't do anything. Even after the bombings, even after those four little girls were killed, you didn't do anything. Not a damned thing. You're respected, you're prominent, you're popular, you're a member of the best clubs, you're on the board of stewards of our church, and you didn't do a thing to help, to say this is wrong. Oh, I know, you said at home, my, that's pretty bad. But you didn't say it where anyone else could hear. What could you have done? You and mother could have got in your car and called on the heartbroken parents. You could have said, we are sorry. That one little thing might have unbound you, freed you. Mother says you think I sat in just to embarrass you, to shame you. She says you think I deliberately got myself put in jail. Maybe I did. Maybe I did just that. If I did, I was wrong. That's a poor reason for fighting for any good cause. But whatever my motive, I had to do something. Maybe I screamed to drown out your silence. And so I ended up in a Mississippi jail, listening to a dirty, low-down cop talking about niggers me, your vassal-educated, summer camp-trained daughter who loves poetry and philosophy and art and human beings and the excellence her father told her always to search for. But to search for excellence may be dangerous. It takes us to strange places sometimes, doesn't it, Dad? Well, uh, Dick Gregory and I are sitting here listening to Lillian Smith. Obviously, Miss Smith, who is, I say is quite ill, uh, had to say this. It's her whole life she's talking about, though the heroine of her story is a young white Southern girl who's part of the sit-in movement, yet she's talking about all white people everywhere, I think. Well, Dick, what's your impression as you were listening to Lillian Smith? In the jail, she brought tears to my eyes because for two reasons. One, I remember those cold nights in the jail. Dick Gregory arrested with 840 kids. Dick Gregory all day long looking after the kids. I remember forgetting Birmingham about 12 midnight. I looked around in the jail and Everyone was asleep. Freedom songs had kind of died down. The anxiety for dying for your rights had died out. The kids was wondering now, when will I get out? At that point, it ceased being fun. 
And then as I turn to look, I see a little kid standing over in the corner, sucking his thumb. And I, I walked over to him and I said, how old are you? And he said, four. And I said, what are you here for? And he said, Tedum. He couldn't even say freedom. And I sit with him and I, I talk to him. And I was embarrassed. And then the Negro trustees that have to come in and be over rough with you because the the guy that holds his life in the balance is standing right outside watching him and he better not be polite in no shape, form, or fashion. And then you look at the tremendous amount of resentment that's created for him, resentment that he shouldn't have, but knowing if he handled it any other way, he would automatically have life in jail. And then I looked at the little kid and I looked at the trustee again say, God, if this trustee could have as much guts as this little kid, that might solve half the problem. That hit me when she talked about the jails, to see the effect it have on some of the jailers after the songs have quieted down, to see this Mississippi cop who had been kicking you and niggering you to death walk up to you, say, can I talk to you? He opens the door and he brings you out and he looks around and he makes sure everyone is asleep. And you look up and he's crying. And then I thought about my wife that she was talking about in jail. In jail, eight months pregnant, by herself, time and time again. Then I remember when I went to Selma, Alabama. What was your wife's maiden name? Lillian Smith was her maiden name. Went to Selma, Alabama. She had stayed in jail 11 days. I went in and talked to Sheriff Clark. He said to me, I arrested a lot of nigger tramps. I arrested a lot of white tramps. But this is the first time in my life when I arrested your wife, I arrested a lady. FBI's been coming in, trying to get out. The only special privilege she ever asked for was a Coca-Cola and she asked for six cups. You see, it was five other girls in the room with her. That's what I thought about when she mentioned it. I'm thinking about your wife's name, Lillian Smith. Lillian Smith, this woman whose voice we heard. You and she, Dick Gregory, are both walking down the same street. So the question is, if we come back thinking about your book, your autobiography, and a tremendously, terribly moving one it is, Nigger, Dutton Publishers, how you got to that Mississippi jail, the beginning. Lillian Smith, in a way, has told her story through this and on other occasions. It began as a kid in St. Louis. Columbus Day. I always think of Columbus Day. Columbus discovered America. Right. The question is, have we discovered Dick Gregory and all he represents? This is the big question. And in discovering him, have we discovered ourselves or not discovering him? How far we got to go? The beginnings. And in this book, you tell childhood. Childhood and uh, the shoeshine kid. This is the uh, Christmas Eve. We're on the. Uh, it's close to Christmas now, and of course um, Sunday. We know that Sunday, Dick at Airy Crown Theater. You, Sammy Davis Jr., Eartha Kitt, other marvelous performers on the Turkeys for Christmas entertainment 
more than that. Uh, tickets are available. But Christmas Eve, you, you, you mentioned a Christmas Eve in the book on page 17, as I remember. Does it come to you? You remember certain Christmases in your life. I remember that one Christmas where we had no tree, we had no reef on the door, we had no toys. I remember I was out in the street that Christmas Eve. Always seemed funny to me because on Christmas Eve, Americans are walking fast, getting that last minute shopping done. You can feel the excitement. And then on Christmas Day, from about 11 o'clock Christmas Eve night to about 6 o'clock Christmas Eve afternoon, the whole country's quiet. You don't hear horns blowing. You don't hear people yelling. And that Christmas Eve, everyone was moving fast. We had gone out, everyone was happy. People that don't like you, like you that day. As I grew up, I seen it more, the company parties, Merry Christmas, Joe, and he didn't even know he had fired you the week before and you just really showing up to get your Christmas check. And he thought you were still there with the party, completely forgot. So everyone was good to us. I had a pocket full of money and my best friend, whose name was Charles Simmons, I'd gone by his home, and we had gifts in the bag, and I looked at Charles unroll all his gifts under the tree, and the excitement that Charles had. I remembered when I walked down the stairway, Charles was so excited, I heard his mother say, say goodnight to Richard, and he said, goodnight, see you in the morning, and I had to go home to nothing, and I walked down the street, slow as I could because home was only a place for me to go when every place else was closed. In the summertime my house was too hot and the wintertime my house was too cold. So as I walked down the street this Christmas Eve night, I'm looking in my window and I see a light and I can't believe it and I start running. And it's very strange because I've never ran home. I always would run out the house and walk home slowly. Because you'd want to get out. I wanted to get out, yes. And as I ran home, the closer I got, the bigger the light was. And there it is, a tree. It's a tree in the house, and there's a reef in the window. And I rushed in, and I grabbed my mother, and I said, Mom, you know how Christmas is supposed to be. Ours is better than anyone else's window in the whole block because they had theirs up for a week now, Mommy. And I was as brand new. And the people will get up tomorrow, Mommy. Can we leave the lights on all day so they could see it? Because we'd kind of messed up the block units block mm -hmm. because every house was decorated but ours. Every tree was lighted at night but ours. And we sit around and we try to rationalize and tell ourselves Christmas trees are very dangerous. Look at all the rich white folks' home that you read about burned down from Christmas trees. Look at all the rich white folks' home you read about burned down from electric trains. And we rationalize, and there this night, I see the tree. I see the gifts under the tree. Mom had bought me a wallet, and in the taverns where I used to sign shoes, the white folks used to open up their wallet and pay their bar bill. And to me, this was a symbol of being grown. But that wallet also had an identity. You wrote your name, and that gave you an identity, didn't it? That's you had right. an identity the card. First time in my life, I had an identity. You card. had a name. 
and I filled my identity card up, and I stacked my dollar bills in it, and I couldn't wait to get on a streetcar and reach in my pocket real slow, and pull out my wallet, flash my identity card, thumble through the bills and reach and get a dollar bill, hand it to the streetcar driver, wait for him to give me my change and open up my little pouch in my wallet and put it in there. It was a Christmas I'll never forget. You know, as you're talking of that, uh, you speak directly almost throughout the book to your mother. It's addressed to her, Mama. Your mother. We think of the family, and in this case, your father, Big Prez, and his problems. And So often we hear the self-righteous, you know, the respectable so-called, speak of the welfare families. And here's the case of your mother having to do the work she did throughout you addressing her, her tremendous love for your father who had his own special problems. Yes, I tell you, the one thing that really used to aggravate us and then really used to make us feel good was Mommy used to always make us buy a gift for Big Press. And when Big Charles... Big Press, your father. My father. Yeah. When Charles, who was my bosom friend, would buy his father a gift. And this was during the time when you could buy a wallet and put a name on it. And I would buy the same thing for my father that Charles would buy for his father, but I couldn't put my father's name on it because if he didn't show up, I would take the gift across the street and give it to Mr. White, who he and his wife ran a restaurant. And every night they would give us pies, give us chicken, and so, to me, this was my father. And although I would buy Mr. White a gift, I would always either have a cigarette lighter for Pop with Mr. White's name on it. And then it dawned on me one Christmas, suppose Daddy would show up. Suppose he comes home. I haven't got a gift for him. And then I never will forget the Christmas he did show up. This was the same Christmas when we had the tree. I went out on the back porch with no coat on. I was praying aloud, I guess. I was thinking, and I was wondering if everybody all over the world could feel the way that I felt. And Mom came out, and she told me to come in the house. What am I trying to do, catch my death or cold? I said, no, Mom, I was just talking to a friend of mine. I walked in the house, and for some reason, every Christmas I'd always noticed it, but this Christmas I noticed it a little bit more. Mom would always kneel down in the window and wait for Big Press to come home. And for some reason, I told her that Big Press would come home this Christmas. I said, I talked to the man on the back porch, Mom, and for some reason, he'll come home. And she sit there all night talking and crying, and she dozed off to sleep. Being that my father worked on the railroad, cooked, that meant he could come home anytime. It was just a matter of when the train would bring him home. And then we got the message. A neighbor came and said, Big Press was in St. Louis and he was drunk. Will we please send someone to get him and bring him home? And we celebrated. We celebrated because for all the kids that say, you have got no daddy, I have one now. I celebrated until I heard him getting out the cab. I never will forget him saying, keep the change. That was big press. Always keep the change. It was a big sport. Oh, yes. And he walked in the house, and I 
I had the resentment then. I went to bed, and I heard him playing with the kids and promising them, and telling them to go to school and what they need. And first time he'd been home in five years, and he walked in the door, sitting down, laws and rules. And I listened to my mother not want us to sit on his lap because we might get his crease in his pants wrinkled. That was the love and affection she had for him. And then he walked into my room. He didn't even bring us a gift. He brought us money. I could make all the money I wanted, get anything I wanted when I was a kid. Shining shoes, selling newspapers, stealing wood. You were a hustling kid. Yeah. And he walked in, and I'd heard him giving him money. And he walked in, and he asked me what was wrong with me. And I said, nothing. I have a Christmas present for you. He said, I have one for you. I said, no, that's not a Christmas gift. Matter of fact, all the money you've thrown around this house today was really not a gift. It was obligation. That's back rent, back food, baby food for Pauline that she didn't have. I had to sit and watch my mother chew up the food and spit it in a spoon and put it in the baby's mouth. Listening to that, looking at the situation in the house, and hearing him slam the cab door and say, keep the change. Mm. <laughs> kind of messed up Christmas for mm. me. You're thinking, of course, what made Big Prez the way he was, Big Prez, the big spender, the guy who never came home. What made him, I suppose, is the old story again of society handling a man a certain way, treating a man a certain way, his escape with his boozing. It's or not hard way. to see. Yeah. Why, at that day and age, so many Negro men left their families, and I'm the last one to give a man a way out. Because at that day and age, the system beat the man out of many men. And we have a different Negro today. 20, 30 years ago, the Negro had an empty stomach. Today, the Negro has a full stomach and a hungry mind. And a hungry mind just reacts much different from an empty stomach. An empty stomach goes by smell, and a hungry mind goes by sound. I sit now and I think what the Negro had to go through on the job, being called boy, being called nigger, come here, do this, do that, and then had to come home that same day and be a man among him kids. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. pretty frightful live that double life, that dual life, and then to have to blame it on the kids. Mm. Heard my mother blame it on us many a time. You know, thinking uh, here so much about the ADC mother, where's the father? And yet we know, as Bayard Rustin has said, others you have said in your own way through your humor, and ask about that, that when a man has a difficult time in getting a job, for many reasons, then he finds that it's easier for the kids if he's away That's than right. something to eat. That's right. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way because of his actual love for the kids. It's like we've had cases where people have been arrested for taking loved ones to doctors who have cancer and saying, would you, would you put them to sleep? We do horses like this with broken legs, put them out of their misery. And many fathers, I imagine it's not just unique to Negroes, I imagine there's many whites who have said and decided the same basic thing. As I bring out in my book, now I feel sorry for the man I used to hate because my daughter 
One day I was sick, had a temperature about 106, receiving telegrams from all over the country, Bobby Kennedy. And I said, and I wondered, are these people, I know they're sincere in sending me telegrams, but many of the telegrams I received, they had to send them. But a two-year-old girl walked up to me as I laid in the bed, which was my daughter, and she stuck her hand in my beard. She said, Daddy, I love you. And that's when I really started feeling sorry for my father, because he never got to hear that. Never did he get to hear a little cold hand reach through his beard with little knuckles and say, Daddy, I love you. Yeah, I'm thinking too, Dick, as I go through your book, the teachers. You always had the dream of the sensitive, imaginary teacher, you know. And yet here's a teacher when you were on welfare, and the teacher, you know, how, how the welfare child was looked upon differently than the other. The question of your own sense of pride, of being, was a fact. Yeah. You offered money, too. I think it was to buy gifts, wasn't it? It was for and the you, Red Feather Campaign. Red Feather yes. Campaign, it was. And uh, she said, when you come tomorrow, let me know how much your father is going to send Monday and I put it in the book. And at that point, when she finished calling the kids' names off, she closed the book. And I just, at that point, thought she had forgotten about me, overlooked my name. And I stood up at seven years old and had $15 in my pocket. And I was gonna buy me a daddy for $15. And I stood up and I said, Miss Smith, you, you didn't call my name. I have $15 my father sent. And she looked at me and she said, we're taking up this money for you and your kind. And if you can afford to pay $15, you have no business on relief. And furthermore, you haven't got a daddy. I couldn't believe I was hearing this. I looked around the class. The class looked at me. See one sympathetic face, many confused faces. And I couldn't understand this. All I was doing was trying to buy a daddy. Is this wrong? with my own money. Is my money dirt? I didn't know I was on relief at seven years old. At that point, I did, and I begged my mother to get off. And as I really resented my whole house because they wouldn't get off relief, as I grow up and understand the way the welfare works, it's only set up, I doubt if they mean it, but whether they mean it or not, the welfare keeps the poor poor, they tell you you can't have a telephone. They kick you off when you're 18 years old. And you have to compete in the world with kids that have telephones. They tell you you can't have a television set. We live in a world where you're going to compete with people that have television sets. And you see all those TV commercials and everything was so beautiful and bright. Yep. It's a strange thing, you know. You talk about welfare. Now I understand my mother. If you are on ADC today, you have a heart condition, sugar diabetes, and you feel a little good, a little better, and you want to work, you cannot go down and say, I want to get off ADC and take my job for this reason. That if you work on a job for six months and your heart condition bothers you again, the red tape it will take you going through to get back on ADC, the kids would start to death. So this is why we had a mother that couldn't come off relief because we were too young, although we made the money. And she used to tell me, I didn't understand. She said, I understand, but you have the normal sicknesses that a kid is going to catch. Mm. One day you might not feel like going to work, you feel like going fishing. And I have the rest of these kids to feed, Richard, and I can't take that. If I get off relief, 
It's going to take me six months to get back on. And that's why so often, too, the father uh, leaves home for that very that very reason, Definitely. because of the need. You know, there's a kid I know, Jimmy, haven't played this tape yet. Jimmy, about 17, was the leader of a group called the Los Condas, pretty rough group. Jimmy's tremendous imagination and understanding. He tells about, he lives with his grandmother, on welfare and then off welfare, and she elevates an operator in one of the hospitals, one of the city hospitals. She says, of course she'd rather work. She questions when she comes home, I'm tired. And yet, you know, oh, she's so, she, something she did herself. She would rather, you yes. know, wear the circumstances. Yes. This is the thing. Very much so. It's a fighting proposition. My mother taught us the one good rule to life that we were not poor, we were just busted. And she explained to us that to be poor is a mental condition and to be busted is a temporary situation. So we grew up being busted physically, but not poor Never mentally. Because Dick, this leads to you yourself, Dick Gregory, and your special, your special art, the matter of you always were a hustling kid, always have it. The matter of the humor, humor out of adversity, humor out of bleakness, the power of the joke, how this came to be in your case, I suppose, as... As a kid, yeah. I used to look at things, used to hear certain insults, and I had to go and laugh. I was with a friend of mine, and a kid called him nigger, and he jumped on him. And after it was over, he wanted to jump on me. He said, what are you laughing about? I said, can you believe that you will get upset over what a man says about you that's not true, which means it have to be in his mind. And when one of these filed up minds can make your mind react, then you're headed the same path he's heading in. So I was able to see humor in many things. We came home and the lights were cut off because the bill and paid. It would be cut off for so long when they'd turn them back on, it would hurt our eyes. <laughs> and we had fun because when the lights was out, Mom couldn't ask us to study. Where's your books? I don't gonna bring no books home. Out Abraham Lincoln studied without lights. I said, Mom, you don't believe those stories yourself, you know. And if you think Abraham Lincoln was such a brilliant kid, then why don't you go out and try to find you Abraham Lincoln? But you hung with us, Mom. <laughs> so it was it was a it was a give and take thing. It came about the house. then to survive. Yes, it was a means to survive. We used to look at this pitch black house with no lights at night, and say, "This is what the moon looks like on the other side." That's what Mom would tell yeah. us, you know. So it's tremendous humor. Never forget the Christmas Eve, my aunt brought a raw turkey by our house and how angry we were. And then the tremendous amount of humor I've had down through the years that my mother was so upset because I took the turkey and I threw it back out in the front lawn. And my mother was just really upset. Why are you gonna be this ungrateful? I said, I'm not ungrateful, Mama, it's your sister. Why would she bring us a raw turkey by the house on Christmas Eve and she know our gas is cut off? Mm -hmm. And then down through the years, it's mm. probably one of the most humorous things. So the very nature of the bleakness, the adversity, the deprivation, all of this became the sources. Oh, yes. The sources of all your humor. You had two ways out of life, either laughing or crying. Both of them relieves tension. Because the old blues is you're laughing on the outside, yeah. crying on the inside. And when you have the two ways out, laughing or crying, of the two, laughing just yeah. gives you more hope. The power. But also this, this in, in the matter of uh, hecklers, the antagonists, and that too, they don't know quite what to do. They're, throughout the book, by the way, the instances of this, uh, when uh, there's the audience there ready to get at Dick, 
who is Negro. And there he is, a Negro, a comedian before white audiences, Negro audiences, and, there, and yet your, your way, your weapons are always there. Yes, and you know what's amazing? After I really got involved in the movement, I don't have hecklers. It's this, this, this respect. I have many people that tell me that I shouldn't have gotten involved. But the hecklers that really heckled me before I got involved with the movement have not in heckled me. Now you're raising, uh, to me, a very, to me at least, uh, a very significant point. This element of winning a new respect because of your militancy. I remember you one night when it was a freedom rally at Mandel Hall in Chicago. You were emceeing, the freedom singers were there. Yes. And your program was divided in two parts. The first was the humor, marvelous ethnic humor, humor of people, of white and Negro people, kidding pomposity all the way. It was hilarious, yet rich and true. The kids sang some songs. And then you became the commentator. Then you answered questions, and it was very astute and biting and pungent and pertinent comment on the scene. So it seems uh, you work two ways. Yes, you two work ways. Two yeah. ways. Your main source is when you gather the information, you know the facts. Uh, this is fairly easy. It's twisting the facts. How can I treat this situation? And J. Edgar Hoover referred to Martin Luther King as the most notorious liar. Now, after I digested this statement, now it's my point as a satirist to see what I can come up with. And I came up with certain things like what King said was true about the FBI. I was in the alley in Mississippi, and the Ku Klux Klan was on one end and the FBI on the other, and I flipped a coin to see which way I was going to go. <laughs> and then Hoover came up with a statement where he says that the FBI have started infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan. And my first reaction to that is I don't mind my tax money going for missiles, but I'd be darned if I'm going to buy some sheets. <laughs> so once you have the, the all of yeah. the basics and know this problem frontwards and backwards. And this is one of the biggest problems we have in America today. We are trying to write the prescription for the sickness and we haven't gone to med school. Yeah, it's yeah. very frightening. Yeah. So you have then, you know, there's a situation here that's absurd. There's something that is patently absurd. Racism in any form is absurd. Therefore, this absurdity becomes the source of all your humor. And when we, you think about it now all the way to its core. Oh, yes, you see it. Yeah. You wonder. You hit a problem, and you look into it, and you search it. And uh, you can be shooting at me and not aware that you're shooting at me, but if you hit me, I'm still dead. Oh, I was discussing with my wife the other night. In America, we have uh, Jewish Americans, uh, which means that they are own part of this country. We have Irish Americans, which means they own part of this country. We have Polish Americans, which means shows ownership. And when it comes to me, it's the American Negro. That's an interesting switch. Which I wasn't aware means of that. that the country owns me. This is what the Negro is freeing himself of. Yeah, this is more than semantics here. Words. It's a very interesting switch here. I hadn't I thought of Again, you think, you see, you then, as a Negro, as an American, and as a humorist, and all three in one man, fused in one man, Dick Gregory, bring out these particular truths. Remember also during that particular Mandel Hall thing, the humor you have of pretension, of all people, white and black, upper, middle class yes. uh, pretensions, and always coming back to sources. Who are you? Yes. I remember the use of names. I remember that was marvelous. Everything. Yes. You remember the girl there, the Negro girl that asked me the question, of, what do you think about James Baldwin's book? And uh, I said, well... 
how can you assume I've read it? You know. Yeah. She says, well, you're just so committed with the struggle. I just assume that you would be one of the first to read James Baldwin, being it's dealing with the problem. And my answer was, it's a strange thing, but the soldier down on the front line do not have to come home and read the newspaper to see how the war is being mm -hmm. reported. That's right. You know, but that. it's uh, it's it's a basic thing. We are trying to solve a problem in this country that's about to destroy the country, and the frightening thing is, if this problem existed in any other country in the entire world, we could solve it. We have the know-how, we have the finance, we have the personnel. But this problem that's upon us in our shores, as we're not honest with it, it's almost like an individual is going to a doctor to be examined and we find out that he has cancer and the doctor telling him he has a headache. It's mm. what he want to hear, yeah. but he can darn sure bet himself he's going to die. I'm thinking again as you're talking about what Lillian Smith was saying too in the beginning, that it's for our salvation. The great pity she spoke of too was for the man who does the actual stepping on. What happens to him inside, this man who can be something else, something different, his own, here is the, always comes to my mind, the little girl, little Negro, led to Little Rock School yes. under the National Guard, and think of those poor, wretched women on the side yes. who are offering the obscenities, and what happens to their kids? There it is. Well, this is a very interesting question, but the frightening part is we've never had a situation exist in the history of the world that we have exist here in America we have a situation where the slave owns all the communications, owns all the transportation, owns all the money, and all the property. This combination will never survive. You see, black America is the master, and white America is the slave. Now, any Negro can stand up and make a statement like this. It sounds like a nice statement to make at this time, the revolution, but to prove it, I can go to the Ed Sullivan show Sunday night and come out for integrated marriages and nothing will happen to me. If Ed Sullivan did, he'd lose his job. You know, who is free that's among a, us? That's a fascinating point right there. This question of uh, the inhibition, the inhibition that is in the white man, humorous, performer, businessman, all, because of the particular shackles that he has that, again, Lillian Smith spoke about and that you imply and speak about all the time, the inhibitions that he has. You speak of a certain guilt. I remember you spoke about Nipsey Russell somewhere in the early days when you were humorist, how the white man visiting the South Side nightclub laughed at the humor that was punching bubbles into yes. stupidities of racism. But when Nipsey Russell did the same thing up north in the north side for an all-white audience, nothing happened. Nothing happened, His yes. guilt was there. That's right. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to see when I know I can go anywhere in America, including Mississippi, and give any white man the keys to my home, and uh, he can move into my house and I'll never have a problem. But there's few whites can give a black man their home. So who is the free one? And this is what we have to do. And this is what's so fascinating when a man calls me nigger. Uh, what reaction? I'm Dick Gregory, I'm an American, I'm a Negro. When a man calls me a nigger, he calls me something that I'm not. And if you call me something I'm not, then where do it exist? In your mind. And if it exists in your mind, then who's the nigger? If I have a glass of milk and I call it a vacuum cleaner, you can't get mad at me because the vacuum cleaner exists in my mind that makes me the vacuum cleaner. And the day we wake up in America and realize that we have to cure this madness that have affected all of us, then and not until then will we survive. So when the white man calls the Negro boy, 
it indicates that he, the caller, is not too sure of his own manhood. That's right. That's perfect. That's what it amounts to. Very frightening to see how we're going about solving this problem. The Senate and the Congress can never solve the problem. All they can do is appropriate the funds. In order to solve the problem and save this country, we'd have to treat this problem the same way that we did when we needed to come up with an atom bomb. We made the right amount of appropriations money-wise, and we went around the world and we brought the top minds in here and put them at the University of Chicago and said, here's what we're looking for. Can you help us? But the congressmen and senators do not have the know-how, do not have the background to deal with this problem. All we have to do is decide we're going to be honest and say this is what's needed, this is what we have to do. And we bring the right people in and say, can you? You see, we've had such a tremendous problem in America, not only the southern white man, not only the northern white man. We have the northern white man treats the southern white man different than all white people treat the Negro different. I imagine it goes all the way back to slavery. The northern white man brought the slaves into America and sold him to the southern white man for top dollar. And that same man that did the selling turned right around and said, get rid of your slaves. And I guess all that southern white man was saying is, do I get a refund? Yeah. Man, I get two cents deposit on a Coke bottle if it's mine. How do you bring foreign cars into the country and sell them Then all at once the government decides that some part of the mechanism of this car is a health manis and it's causing people to get sick and they take the car off the market. Well, buddy, you're going to have to give me a refund yeah. or you're going to have the same condition that existed yeah. when we tried to do it with the slaves. The same guy did the selling also came around and says, all right, get rid of them. No, you have to reimburse me for this. And I hope we don't make the same mistake yeah. today. And we are. Yeah. Because when we get ready to integrate Mississippi, we send a soldier and a gun down there. When we get ready to integrate Chicago, New York, and L.A., they give us a bus. That soldier and the gun's good enough for the southern white man, and that soldier and yeah. gun should be good enough for the yeah. northern white man. If we're going to yeah. try a bus up north, we yeah. owe it to him out of common decency yeah. to try a bus down there. Yes. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about being the attitude toward the Negro, even among the most enlightened of white people. Way, way back, this is something I knew. I now, I'm looking inside myself now. Once, as you say, he was brought here as a thing, as a chattel, as a slave. And there was no father because the family was split up and they hurt the scars, as you say, as Baldwin says, everyone is, is still there, the scar. Yeah. But a thing. But the man who treats you as a thing, he's, the, as you said, it's in his mind. Yes. He then becomes the real thing. Oh, and yes. The worship of a gadget and a gimmick today is not unnatural. And now he's been putting this money in the bank and he hasn't been watching his receipt. Yeah. And now when he goes back to take it out because he thought he had $100 in, all he have is 54. You see, we move into a white neighborhood today, and a man said, if they move in, it's going to depreciate my property. And he's right. Not physically, but the only reason that $10,000 house was worth $25,000 to him in the first place is because I couldn't move in. And he's definitely right. When I move in, his property is depreciated because he was able to moved there and he paid tremendous outrageous prices because he could get away from me 
And so now, if you tell me your neighborhood's a thoroughbred, nothing breaks a thoroughbred. If you got two thoroughbred horses in the Kentucky Derby and I put a milk dub in, all your reaction should be is that I pay my entrance feed. When you worry about my milk dub affecting your thoroughbreds, your thoroughbreds were not thoroughbreds. Yeah, what was depreciated not so much was a home, but a place he ran away from too. That's right. You see. That's right. So now the home was depreciated, but the place he ran away from too this was depreciated. Is, this is very true. Yeah. This is the problem. Yeah. It's like everyone says, now nah, if you let these Negroes into schools, they'll, they'll just bring down the educational standard. Now, I sit and I wonder, in the history of the world, good high educational standards have always flunked out dumb people. A stupid man can't survive at Harvard. Now, when all at once people's worrying about a stupid individual busting out the school, then the school was no good. The school was no good, absolutely. This is why everyone says he's inferior. Watch him, keep your eye on him, keep him in his place. An inferior man, you never have to watch. You never have to worry about yeah. keeping him in his yes. place. Yes. Yeah. All you have to do is come back and feed him because he cannot feed himself and tell him what to do. Yeah. Uh, anytime you assume that a man's inferior and you have to watch him and keep him in his place, you're living in one of the biggest yeah. tricks in the history of the world yeah. because the thought of what this system have had to do to me, watch me, guard me, put roadblocks up in front of me, means that I'm not as inferior yeah. as he would like for me to be. Of course, because if you were inferior, we, all these barriers wouldn't be needed. That's right. If you were a thing, That's nothing right. would be needed. Because this leads to the question of teachers, I'm thinking. I'm also thinking of your time, too. But the teachers, you know, uh, here with the troubled teachers have in Southside school teachers. And yet we know, and I hear from experience, those if they only knew the richness that is in those kids that they could get at, the real richness that is there, whether it's in law or imagination or the very nature of life itself. So this is a, maybe indeed a reflection upon teachers too. Well, the teachers have, start, have to start changing tactics because now we deal in a situation where you don't only have to teach a man. There's a great revolution going on now and you have a different man. You see, when I was a kid, my mother only came home and told me about the good white folks. No man could come home and tell his kids about someone that slapped him because he had to be a man in his own home. So we went to school knowing only about the Your good white folks. Your mother worked as a domestic. Yes. Today, I can't tell my kids about only the good white folks because she watched television and she see what's going on. So it's a different mind so you had in the classroom. There was, a, there was fact and fantasy in your childhood in St. Louis. Uh, the fantasy told by your mother and then the fact that you experienced on the streets yourselves. Right. Yes, yeah. Or in this tavern when this uh, you were shining this lady's shoes and some guy came along and socked you, Kicked take your hand, and kick yes. a hand off of it. But the bartender, even though this guy socked you, another guy, the bartender pushed you out apologizing to you, yes. slipping five bucks in your yes. hand too. It took me 20 years to figure that out. Yeah. The bartender put me out and slipped me some money and I couldn't understand why he told me not to never come back again. I, I got grown. I never forgot that. And it, it, I realized what it was. That I was not wrong, but after all, those were his customers. And yeah. That's how he made his yeah. living. And uh, he was apologizing to me for him having to tell me not to come back no more, so he gave me the money. So, so someone who lives in a wrong, and if this, if this, for the moment, this tavern could be our whole society, if we can expand it for a moment, this particular saloon is our whole society, something is wrong, something's cockeyed, this man lives in it, makes his livelihood from it. When this kid comes in who is altogether innocent, he's got to kick him out because the very presence of that kid, because the absurdity of color, makes it into therefore he will kick out the kid who was innocent and have to bow to the guy who's guilty. Yes, it's very much so. But it'll give you a fin, though. Yes, he yeah. gave me the money, yes. 
I'm thinking, Dick, uh, you know, perhaps one, this is as a favor, just your humor as such. You were telling the story of moving to a suburb and the fear that was on the part of Negroes of perhaps how you should behave and also the fear of the whites when you oh, moved yes, into a suburb. Oh, yes, the story of moving into the all-white neighborhood. Yeah. The first delegation that met me on my porch the first day telling me how I'm supposed to act was the Negro delegation. And you have to be careful out here because they're watching us. I said, well, what are you doing, stealing or something out here? No, you know what we mean, looking for you to depreciate the property. I said, buddy, you realize they just charged me $75,000 for a $12,000 house. I'll depreciate the whole block. <laughs> he said, no, we don't mean that. We mean keep your lawn mowed and your hedges trimmed and plant something out here. So I planted something. I planted watermelons and cucumbers <laughs> and turnip greens. And Life is strange. Life is strange. You know the frightening thing? If one seven-headed idiot floated down here tonight from outer space and called us Earth people, this is what we would be, and the top world leaders would be sitting at a table five hours from now saying, what can we do with this thing? Yeah. We're not going to get out that easy. Yeah. So all of us have to sit and say to ourselves, who among us will be that seven-headed idiot? Yeah. And then we have to say perhaps the last question and ask you before you talk about some events of Sunday this weekend. Uh, who uh, it comes back to the question Lillian Smith asks and Dick Gregory asks when he had that wallet as a kid and he put his identity, put his name down, I am somebody, I am I, I am who am I, who are we? This is the question the white man asks as much as the Negro, perhaps even more so because of the circumstance. We've got to find who we are, really, we get right, right. a man or a thing. Yes, very much so. And the thing is the thing who tries to make the other man the thing. Yeah. Yeah, we come to that again. Yes. As you say that, you showed me a season's greeting here. You showed me, uh, it was a Christmas card, the season's greetings with best wishes for the new year, and it's signed, Governor and Mrs. George C. Wallace. And there's a picture of the White House of Alabama, the governor's mansion, with wreaths uh, celebrating the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. He would crack up now if he knew I had that Christmas card. That <laughs> How did you get a card from George Wallace in your hands? I don't know, either someone gave it to me. It's, it's a real card. I've checked that out. Or someone slipped me on his mailing list accidentally. Now, what would happen here, if we remember this last question, here is Governor George C. Wallace of Alabama, and has a beautiful Christmas card, and it's in the pocket of Dick Gregory. What would his reaction be, I wonder, just to so... Everything be knocked cockeyed all over again. Yes, because if he knew that he was saying season's greeting, best wishes for the new year. <laughs> yeah, best wishes for the new year. For the new year. The book, by the way, we haven't... I just Naturally, we've been referring to the book, and uh, some of the comments that Dick Gregory's made are comments that are reflected very eloquently. People in the book, nigger, with a small n, by the way. Yes. Small n, there again, the irony. Dick Gregory Dutton of the publishers. And as you say, how does that end again? Uh, it's to your mother again. It says, Dear Mom, let me read the Please last do. paragraph here. You didn't die. The beginning of the book starts off with, says, Dear Mom, wherever you are, if ever you hear the word nigger again, remember they're just advertising my book. And the last paragraph of the book ends this way. You didn't die a slave for nothing, Mama. You brought us up. You and all those Negro mothers who gave their kids the strength to go on, to take a thimble to the well while the white folks was taking buckets. Those of us that wasn't destroyed got stronger, got calluses on our soul, and now we're ready to change a system. 
a system where a white man can destroy a black man with a single word, nigger. When we threw mama, there won't be any niggers anymore. Again, the question you raised earlier in the point you made, in the mind, the man calls it in his mind. He then is the one. Nigger's the book, Dick Gregory. Even though I hesitated in the, you know, the hesitancy in saying the words, I, said, I mumbled it. See, yes. that's very interesting, see. Dutton, the publishers. And perhaps Sunday, if we can just refer to Sunday, uh, it's Sunday afternoon, is it? No, Sunday it's, evening. It's Sunday evening yes. at 8.30. Sunday night, eight, eight at 8 o'clock. At 8 o'clock, yes, Sunday evening, Sunday 8 o'clock, Ari Crown Theatre, Dick Gregory. We still uh, have plenty of good Jr. tickets. That uh, tickets, there'll be uh, humor, entertainment, eloquence, fire, uh, as much as anywhere in a long time under one roof at the Airy Crown Theatre. And the, the purpose, of course, quite clearly, for those of you who may not know, it's Christmas in Mississippi, the ascending of turkeys down there, despite the uh, good Christian difficulty in some quarters yes. on that subject. So it's Airy Dick Gregory, perhaps this is the first. We've got to meet again, I know, and talk some more. It's a never-ending theme, not only of white man, black man, but the subject is man, a discovery of himself. There's a postscript. Dick Gregory has a P.S. I have probably one of the most beautiful documents I call I've ever been able to put my hands on. It's a speech that Abraham Lincoln gave 108 years ago. And the wisdom of this great man to know where we were headed, I think is summed up in this speech that he gave here in Illinois when he said, when you have succeeded in dehumanizing the Negro, when you have put him down and made it impossible for him to be but as the beast of the fields, when you have extinguished his soul in this world and placed him where the ray of hope is blown out as in the darkness of the damned, are you quite sure the demon you have aroused will not turn and rend you? Our reliance is on the love of liberty which God has planted in us. Our defense is in the spirit which prize liberty as the heritage of all men in all lands everywhere. Destroy this spirit and you have planted the seed of despotism at your own doors. Familiarize yourself with the chains of bondage and prepare your limbs to wear them. Accustomed to trampling on the rights of others, you have lost the genius of your own independence and become the fit subject of the first cunning tyrant who rise among you. Abraham Lincoln said this 108 years ago, and it holds more true today than it did then. I wonder how long. Amen to that. Dick Gregory, thank you very much. <laughs>